1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4 and simply the first part of that verse. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Our theme then is the long-suffering and kindness of the true Christian. The long-suffering and the kindness of the true Christian. We have seen in this passage the true Christian love is greater than all spiritual gifts. That a man may have great spiritual gifts in the church of God and yet not be a real Christian at all. Whereas this Christian love or charity is a distinctive of the real Christian. And uh, this Christian love shows itself in outward action. And yet we've seen that it is possible for there to be a great deal of outward benevolent activity and yet this love be absent in the heart. So verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity or love, it profiteth me nothing. That is, that someone could go to great lengths in benevolent activity, even giving all his goods, and to great lengths in self-sacrifice, even to the extent of giving his life, and yet still not have this love within the heart. And so, for example, to give an example from history, if we think of George Whitfield, perhaps one of the greatest English-speaking preachers of the gospel ever in the, in the whole of history, Whitfield, one of the early Methodists, preached to thousands and was mightily used of God in the conversion of sinners. But before his conversion, before he became a Christian, he was a member of what was known as the Holy Club at Oxford. And the members of this group, uh, which include, included a number of those who became Methodist preachers later on, after they were converted, they engaged in a rigorous discipline of religious and uh, benevolent works. They were resolved not to waste any time and they spent as much as possible, they spent all their time either in study or else in religious exercises or else in benevolent work visiting the prisons, visiting the poor, and they went short of sleep, and Whitfield engaged in all of these things, and he even gave up eating fruit so that he could use the money and give it to the poor, and he did all of those things before he was a Christian, before he was born again of the Spirit, before he knew the way of salvation, before he trusted Christ as his Saviour. But in this verse 4, we are given two things that Christian love invariably will show itself in. 
Because although there can be outward benevolence without Christian love, there cannot be Christian love without the outward expression of that love. And so we read, charity or love suffereth long and is kind. Or literally, love long suffers is kind. Love long suffers is kind. The first long suffering, the first of them, has to do with our response to what is done to us and the second has to do with what we do to others. First of all then, Christian love is expressed in long-suffering. Christian love is expressed in long-suffering. Where there is love, there must be and there will be long-suffering. The Apostle is giving here things that invariably accompany and are the expression of Christian love. So the man who loves will long suffer. He will suffer long. And long suffering is a response to injury. It presupposes evil done to us and our long suffering of that evil done to us. The evil done to us may be physical and bodily, or it may be financial, or it may be in words and attitude, but there is an injury done to the person who then long suffers. It may be injury to our body, to our goods and possessions, or it may be injury to our name and reputation by things being said about us or injury to our feelings because of what is said to us unjustly and unfairly. Now, God himself in the scriptures is described as long-suffering. So if we look at how God exercises long-suffering, we will be well on the way to understanding what that long-suffering is that the true Christian will display. In the Old Testament, God is said to be long-suffering. For example, in Exodus 34 and verse 6 and Numbers 14 verse 18, where the Lord is described as gracious and of great kindness, slow to anger, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. It's mentioned in Psalm 86, verse 15, which we sang at the beginning of uh, the service, that the Lord is long-suffering, long-suffering and in thy truth and mercy plenteous. It's mentioned in Jeremiah 15 and verse 15. So in all of these places, the Lord is said to be long-suffering. And uh, uh, the phrase long-suffering in the Old Testament, uh, the English phrase, is a translation, of course, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew expression is, uh, contained, is derived from two words meaning long and face. And the idea is of the Lord being slow to anger, that he looks long before he 
punishes and brings down his judgment upon men. And it expresses the idea that the Lord does not always judge sin according to its deserts immediately, that he bears with and exercises uh, patience toward the guilty. And in each of these places that I've mentioned, this Hebrew phrase, when the Old Testament was translated into the Greek language, in which the New Testament is also written, it was this word that we have in our text that was used to describe this long-suffering. And the word in our text, again, conveys the idea of longness of spirit, or long to anger, to express uh, anger. It's the idea of waiting a long time, of being slow to anger. In the New Testament, the Lord is said to show long-suffering to sinners. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, we read of this long-suffering. Romans 2 and verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, it's the same basic word, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And here the, the idea being taught is this, that God's goodness to unrepentant, unconverted sinners was being abused. They despised God's long-suffering. And instead of uh, God's goodness showing them that they need to repent, that they should repent, that they are required to repent, that they ought to repent, they were despising it and going on uh, despising the long-suffering of God because God is slow to anger, because God forbears and does not immediately deal with men according to their deserts, this is abused and despised and misconstrued and uh, they use it as an excuse to go on in sin instead of learning from it their need to repent. Then again in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20 it speaks of the days of Noah and of those who who were destroyed in the flood. First Peter 3 verse 20, which sometime were disobedient, disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So in the days of Noah, those who ultimately were drowned and destroyed and judged in their sin were the object of this long suffering while the ark was being prepared. They perished in their sins, but they had known God's long suffering. He bore with them. So in Romans 9 and verse 22 we read, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering? the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. There it's speaking those who are, of those who are not 
God's elect, those who are not saved and who are ultimately condemned forever, that they were born with by God. They were uh, objects of his long-suffering before they were brought to destruction. And this long-suffering of God means that he does not immediately deal with sinners as they deserve. Now, because God is God and we are not, of course God will ultimately, surely, judge and punish all sin. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? All sin will be punished and punished by God because God is the rightful judge of all. And so all sin will be punished for those who are saved. Their sins have been punished on the cross of Calvary in the substitute, Jesus Christ. For those who are not saved, their sins will be punished upon themselves forever in hell. But it is an expression of God's love that he bears with and does not immediately deal with sinners according to to their sins. He normally bears long with sinners, sparing them long in this world, despite their multiplied transgressions against him. Because love suffers long. Now what then is this long-suffering in man? What is this long-suffering in man? When Christians exercise this long-suffering, what is it? First of all, it is the opposite of a hasty and thoughtless reaction. In Titus 1 verse 7, we are told that those who are to be overseers in the church of God must not soon be angry. In the Proverbs 14.29, He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. So first of all, this long-suffering is the opposite of a hasty and thoughtless reaction. But then secondly, it is not responding in a spirit of personal revenge. We are all, because we're sinners, inclined to great indignation when sin is committed against us. And the reason is because we have a high estimate of our own value and importance. So that sin can be committed against others without arousing great passion. But when it's committed against us, we rise up in rage against the person who has done this thing. And we either seek revenge or we would like revenge and we entertain malicious thoughts and perhaps utter malicious words if not towards the offender then about the offender to others. And the effect is the same. If you speak maliciously uh, in gossip about someone else, 
then you are seeking to lower that person's standing and reputation in the eyes of another. And you are seeking secretly to harm that other person. That is what malicious gossip is in its true colours. We might gloss it over and call it good crack and so on sometimes. And of course there is legitimate friendship and conversation. I'm not saying there isn't. But this malicious gossip finds its way in and we colour it and put a good name on it. But what we're actually doing is seeking to harm others by bringing down their reputation it's unknown to them in the eyes of other people. Now all of these things are simply expressions of malice and when they are towards someone who has done wrong to us, they simply express our desire for personal revenge, albeit a frustrated desire for that revenge. And of course, Malicious words, even when spoken to the offender, are a, a thousand miles away from godly reproof. Godly reproof aims at God's glory and the good of the offender. Whereas malice, malicious, bitter words, aim at or are the expression of our desire for revenge, which if it cannot come to physical action, at least we want to wound as far as we can another person with our tongues. Now, long-suffering is the opposite of these things. And long-suffering is more than simply managing to keep the lid on our boiling rage. Long-suffering is more than that. Long-suffering entails meekness. Now, meekness is not just softness, spinelessness of the wet lettuce leaf kind of character. That's not meekness. Meekness is not simply spinelessness. Meekness is when we acknowledge that God alone is great and that his rights are supreme. And the honour of God, when we are meek, is that which dominates our thinking and our practice. And so our reactions even to injury done to us, our reactions are governed by what honours and glorifies God. And so we will seek peace even in the face of injury if that is to, glory, to the glory of God. That is especially true within the church. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7 when he is condemning the fact that in Corinth church members were taking up each other to court and before unbelieving and pagan judges. And he says, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? He's saying, Rather 
rather than have the name of Christ reproached among the, the heathen by one professing Christian taking another before the heathen law courts suffer the wrong. And so someone who is meek and therefore long-suffering has as his chief consideration the honour and the glory of God. And uh, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2, the apostle says, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering for bearing one another in love. There must be meekness if there is to be long-suffering. Because if we are not meek, we are proud. And if we're proud, we have a high estimate of our rights. And we will not be long-suffering. Whereas the Apostle Paul was meek. And he only insisted on his own rights where they were tied up with the, with the honour of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in the book of Acts, in some places, when the Apostle Paul was arrested and imprisoned and beaten, in some places, he tells them, I'm a Roman citizen. He, 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 he insists on his rights as a Roman citizen. But in other places, he doesn't. And the deciding factor in each case was this. Will it honour Christ and be for the good of his church to insist on my rights or to forego those rights? He saw himself as having no rights that were absolute. He insisted on even his civil rights only so far as it was in the interest of the honour of God and the good of his church. And so the Christian is to suffer wrong and he is to have as his concern the honour of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is not only to suffer, but to suffer long. That doesn't mean that he should not take defensive measures which may be necessary, but the Christian is to be free from a malicious desire for personal revenge, even though the offender offends over a long period and repeatedly. So the Apostle in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14 Now we exhort you brethren warn them that are unruly comfort the feeble minded support the weak be patient and it's the same word as long suffer toward all men. And then we have to say that love to God will constrain this loving long-suffering to men. If we love God, we will desire to be holy as God is holy. We will desire in those ways in which it is right for a creature to be like his creator, we will desire to be like God in those ways. Now God is the judge and we are not. 
That makes a difference. But God shows long suffering towards men in this world and therefore we, if we love God, will want to show long suffering towards men. God bears with sin against him and he bears long, though as judge he must and will surely judge in the end, but in this world he, he shows long suffering in this world towards sinners and therefore we will want to reflect the long suffering of our Father in heaven if we love him. And so we will bear with sin against ourselves though we fully agree with the fact that God as judge will one day punish all unforgiven sin at the appointed time so we conform to God in his long suffering in this world but we acknowledge his uniqueness as the rightful judge of all in the end we are to be like him in his long suffering but acknowledge that we are not like him in that he has the right ultimately to judge all men. If we love God, we will long suffer because love to God is accompanied by a low self-estimate. Love to God is always accompanied by a low self-estimate. You cannot love God and think a lot of yourself at the same time. And therefore, if we have a high view of God, we will have a high view of his long-suffering to us. And we will be constrained by that to imitate God in showing long-suffering to those who injure us. And if we have love to God within our hearts, we will also have a sense of our own unworthiness. And that will cause us to be aware of the fact that those sins which others commit against God in their dealings with us are sins to which, of which we by nature are fully capable ourselves. When someone sins against us, when they injure us, if we, have, if we love God and have a high view of God and a low view of ourselves, we will recognize that those sins which are committed by way of injuring us are sins of which we are capable. And we will have a more realistic view of sins that involve injury to us. When someone sins and breaks God's law in such a way that it harms us physically, materially, emotionally or whatever. If we have a high view of God and if we love God and have a low view of ourselves, the fact that that sin involves harm to us will not be the dominant factor. If we are low in our own eyes, when we are the recipients of sinful ill-treatment, the fact that it's us who have been harmed will not be the all-consuming consideration. Because, you see, 
Sin is against God. All sin is against God. And the man who does us harm would have committed as much sin against God if he'd done it to someone else. Now there are variations of guilt according to whom is, who is sinned against, but all of the things being equal, the fact that it is us who have been the recipients of the harm will not be the all-important consideration if we love God and are humbled, broken sinners depending upon the Saviour and so have a high view of God and a low view of ourselves. then the fact that we are the recipients of the harm will not cause us to view this particular sin as vastly greater than any other sins under the sun. But that's what happens when we're full of pride. When we're full of pride, that's like a magnifying glass. Sins against us, we view them as so great, so large, so big, that they virtually crowd out of the picture all the sins that are committed under the sun. Those sins against us are all important. And they, those sins are the sins that deserve visitation of judgment above all sins. But that's because we have a high view of ourselves. And sins against us are all important to us. But when a man is meek, when he's humble, when he's a poor sinner, born of the Spirit, dependent upon Christ alone for acceptance with God, he thinks highly of God. He sees all sinners against God. And he doesn't allow the fact that sin, uh, uh, someone's sin harms him to magnify it as if it were the only sins in the world that really mattered. And love to God, love to God will be accompanied by a view of providence. And this is important also. When we see God's providence behind our injuries from others, it will alter our whole disposition. God's providence is his most holy, wise and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. That means that everything that comes upon us, even at the hands of ungodly men, even those harmful actions meant for evil against us, in action or in word, are part of the plan of God. And if we're Christians, we know that all things, even those things, all things work together for good to them that love God and who are called according to his purpose. And when we bring that biblical view of providence to bear upon what is done to us, it will immediately, dis it will immediately disperse our frantic resentment. When we see that behind even the hatred of men is the providence of our loving God, it will immediately disperse that bubbling up of anger and rage which is natural to us as sinners. When David was cursed by Shimei, 
and his colleagues wanted to cut off Shimei's head. And David said, let him alone, the Lord has bidden him. David had a calmness of spirit which, is, which those others did not have because he saw the providence of God even in that vile and hateful action of Shimei. So when we see the love of God behind even the hatred of men towards us, it sweetens the whole affair and calms us down. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee. So easily, however, are we beset by anger and impatience that the Apostle Paul warns Timothy as a minister. He tells him uh, to reprove, to rebuke and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine because he knew that Timothy was still a sinner and even in the handling of holy things he could get exasperated he could lose patience at the perversity and the unwillingness to receive uh, the truth as he taught it and so he says with all long-suffering and doctrine even Moses that man who was very weak one point he forgot his place before God. He forgot for one moment that he was a messenger of God and no more. And he was so exasperated with the Israelites. He gave place to sinful anger and he smote the rock and said, Hear ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? If Moses could sin in that way, if Timothy needed to be warned, how much do we all? We need an ever fresh sense of God's greatness and his grace and of our own nothingness and undeservedness in order to be kept from this sin which does so easily beset us. Love expressed in long-suffering. Secondly, very briefly, love expressed in kindness. Love expressed in kindness. As well as meekly bearing offences from others, Christian love will cause us to actively do good to others in kindness. The Scriptures tell us that God is kind. The Scriptures tell us that God is kind. In 1 Peter 2 verse 3, the Apostle Peter says, If so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And that word gracious is the same word as kind in our text. And he's referring to Psalm 34, verse 8, which says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. So an expression of God's goodness is his kindness to his people. To taste the salvation of the Lord is to experience the kindness of God. In Matthew 11:32, the Lord Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is Easy, And that word easy is the same word translated kind in our text. My yoke is kind. 
His yoke is a yoke of kindness and of love and of mercy. So God's saving grace to his people is the supreme expression of this kindness. The kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared not through any works of righteousness that we had done but according to his own mercy and grace through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. God is kind when he saves sinners. But he is also said to be kind in the bestowment of his good gifts upon men. Luke chapter 6 and verse 35, the same word is used. Luke 6:35. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. God is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Yes, his salvation of his elect, that is the supreme expression of that kindness. But he is also kind in the bestowment of good things upon men, un unthankful and evil men. And we are to love as God loves. And so we are to be kind to our enemies. Now we are to be kind to our fellow Christians. Ephesians 4.32 And be kind one to another, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We are to be kind. He gives the opposite of that in the previous verse in Ephesians 4 and verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another. To speak evil of others is to wound them. It is to wound them by damaging their reputation. So evil speaking is to be put away. We're trying to harm someone when we engage in malicious gossip and evil speaking. But we are to be kind one to another in the way we speak to others and in the way we speak about others. But we are to be kind not only to one another, but even to our enemies. That's what Luke 6.35 is saying. We are to be kind because God is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. And the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 5 verse 44 tells us something of what that kindness to our enemies Entails, he says, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. That kindness of God to men, sending rain and sunshine on the just and the unjust, is to be mirrored in his children in that they show kindness to their enemies by blessing those who persecute them and praying for those who despitefully use them. Do we seek the welfare of others 
who are obnoxious and offensive and hurtful. Are we willing to do so? And to do so heartily and ungrudgingly. In Exodus 23, Israel was told to do this. Exodus 23 verse 4. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee, lying under his burden, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. So to seek the good of others is kindness. And we are to seek the welfare of others and the welfare of their souls. So in the book of Proverbs, chapter 24, and verse 11, Proverbs 24, and verse 11, If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if thou seest, behold, we knew it not, Doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall he not render to every man according to his works? We are to seek the welfare of others, the eternal welfare of others. We are to seek, uh, in, in terms of our responsibility, though the ultimate outcome is not in our hands, it's in God, but we are to seek by witness and by prayer the conversion of sinners. So Daniel 12 verse 3, They that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars in heaven. Romans 10 verse 1, The apostle who was not beloved by his fellow Israelites never say, nevertheless says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Our love is to be patterned after God's. He is kind in providence in sending the gospel to sinners, in bestowing good gifts upon sinners, and supremely in the everlasting salvation of his elect. Well then, what is the application? First of all, is this loving, long-suffering and kindness found within us as a congregation? If we are to love our enemies, how inexcusable if we do not display a, a significant marked degree of this kindness even to our very brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians are to love their enemies if we don't even love one another. No wonder the Apostle Paul in that passage in Ephesians 4 in verse 30, he says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Put away all malice and evil speaking and so on, and be ye kind one to another. The absence of this kindness uh, amongst the people of God is inexcusable. And if we have been guilty of uh, maliciousness, in our hearts or in our thoughts or in our words to or about others, even within the congregation of the Lord, let us repent before God because it is deeply offensive to Him. But then secondly, 
Do we love and show kindness even to our enemies? This cannot be brushed aside. We know the doctrine of Christian love is miserably contorted and distorted by liberal theologians, but it's there in the scriptures, the real thing. And this cannot be brushed aside. So fundamental is it that the Lord Jesus himself tells us that it is the mark of a real Christian. Matthew 5, verse 46. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. The publicans were the tax collectors, Jewish men who served the Roman authorities by collecting the taxes from their fellow countrymen and screaming off uh, an inordinate profit for themselves in the process. They were unscrupulous men. And he's saying, but even they love those who love them. Do you love your own family? Of course you do. I hope you do. That It would be a terrible thing if you don't. But it doesn't tell you you're a Christian. Vile men. Men who despise the God of heaven. Love their own family. Do you have a good relationship with your neighbours? A relationship of mutual considerateness and helpfulness and you're on good terms I hope you do there's far more of that left in this part of the world than in many other places and uh, we should be thankful it is so but it doesn't tell you that you're a Christian 